Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. Over the past few years, our understanding of autoimmune encephalitis, an umbrella term for a group of non-infectious inflammatory central nervous system diseases, has dramatically expanded. Prompt diagnosis and treatment hinges on clinicians' familiarity with the conditions. In today's episode of Neural Pathways, we're discussing a practical approach to the diagnosis and management of autoimmune encephalitis. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. I'm very pleased to have Dr. Amy Konchuk join me for today's conversation. Dr. Konchuk is a neurologist in the Mellon Center for Multiple Sclerosis Treatment and Research within Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. Amy, welcome to Neuropathways. Thanks, Glenn. It's great to be here. So just as a start, just so our audience can understand you a little bit for just a little background, tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me uh, how you got to the Cleveland Clinic, uh, how you got interested in the area. Uh, I've been interested in autoimmune neurology for several years during my training in Australia. And then after my neurology training, I went to the Mayo Clinic for Uh, fellowships in autoimmune neurology and also in uh, MS and neuroimmunology. Uh, So after completing those fellowships, I I joined here as staff at the Mellon Centre. And my clinical practice involves a mix of uh, autoimmune neurology as well as uh, multiple sclerosis. Great. So it's great having somebody interested in autoimmune encephalitis. So we're glad that you're here and, and have a specific interest in it. So the differential diagnosis of encephalitis is very broad. Uh, What should prompt clinicians to further examine a patient for autoimmune encephalitis? I think it's um, really important to think about the clinical presentation and whether you have supportive data. Uh, So clinical presentation would typically be a subacute onset of uh, neurological symptoms such as cognitive impairment, uh, seizures in particular, and sometimes uh, psychiatric symptoms. So those are sort of key uh, common features clinically. And then supportive clinical data could be things like a spinal fluid that shows a pleocytosis or elevated protein, or an MRI that shows features of uh, classical limbic encephalitis of T2 flare hyperintensity of the temporal lobes. So uh, you mentioned it just a little bit, but what does a comprehensive evaluation for suspected autoimmune encephalitis include? What what would you work up? We would typically uh, do a spinal fluid. And in addition to doing routine analyses, we would send it for neural antibody testing. So looking for um, antibody biomarkers for autoimmune encephalitis. We would often send the spinal fluid for differential diagnoses such as infective encephalitis, um, so setting it for routine uh, infective PCRs. Other uh, markers in the spinal fluid that are helpful are things like oligoclonal bands or IgG index, which can also point to intrathecal uh, immune activation. In the serum, we also send neural antibodies and we also look in the serum for other differentials. So we make sure that you know patients have a, a, complete, meta, a complete blood count, metabolic panel, um, any other screening that may be relevant for an, uh, an alternative diagnosis of encephalopathy. So in some cases, that may mean toxicology testing, um, B12, folate, uh, thyroid function tests, et cetera. Other tests that we routinely do include um, a EEG if a patient has new onset seizures, and this can also be helpful also to identify encephalopathy. 
and an MRI of the brain can be useful to look for the classical features of limbic encephalitis as well as other um, inflammatory changes. And if I had a patient and I was thinking about doing antibodies, would I check both serum and CSF or just one of those? Great question. Uh, yes, we generally recommend that patients have testing in both serum and CSF, and this is because it increases the sensitivity and specificity of your testing. So there are some neural antibodies that are more sensitive in the serum, but lack specificity, and the spinal fluid can be much more specific for some antibodies, in particular NMDAR, IgG and uh, GFAP IgG are much more specific in the spinal fluid, and um, GAD65 as well. And what about uh, checking patients routinely for CT of the chest, abdomen, pelvis, or a PET scan? Is that an overkill or only if strongly suspecting cancer, or do you routinely check that? I think that the neural antibodies can guide you somewhat. So there are neural antibodies that are highly associated with perineoplastic neurological syndromes. Some of these might be ANA1 or anti-WHO, MA1, MA2, um, PCA1 or anti-YO, some of the classical onconeuronal antibodies. These ones are almost always seen in the setting of cancers. So in those patients, yes, I would um, recommend malignancy screening. There are some neuroantibodies that have lower frequencies of malignancy. Um, an example might be LGI-1. We still typically often do screen at the first evaluation because often when we are first evaluating encephalitis, we don't have all the neuroantibodies back. Um, but you may triage further screening after you get those initial neuroantibodies and decide whether you need to continue surveillance depending on the risk. Yeah, so I think that's a very important point that you just raised. How long does it take for the antibodies to come back? Are these done in-house or they're all sent out? Yeah, the antibodies that we test for at Cleveland Clinic go get the samples get sent to Mayo Clinic and the turnaround time is between one and two weeks. Um, so often we do have to make clinical decisions before we get those results back. Yeah, this is probably the point that I always discuss with the residents that we need to have a high index of suspicion. Uh, because by the time we get the antibodies back, uh, maybe we've lost a window of opportunity. So um, what would we do as initial treatment if we have a high suspicion for autoimmune encephalitis? But typically, the first-line treatment that we start in patients is um, intravenous methylprednisolone, and we would typically start at a gram and give this over five days, a gram a day for five days. That would be our first-line treatment while we're waiting for results to come back. Depending on the severity and the clinical suspicion, you may also add adjunct therapies. So sometimes we have a case that we're confident about the diagnosis and, and the patient is also in a severe clinical state. We may consider things like plasma exchange. And additionally, other therapies that we sometimes use as an adjunct to steroids are, include intravenous immunoglobulin. So sometimes residents will ask me, can I use oral steroids versus intravenous methylprednisolone. Any difference? Do we have any data on that? I'm not certain we have any um, specific data on that question, but generally it's much more easier to give patients intravenous steroids to give the equivalent dose. Oral is a huge pill burden, you know, approximately 25 tablets a day. Um, and so there can be also challenges of absorption. And further, some of our patients are severely encephalopathic and we can't reliably uh, give them oral therapies. So more often than not, we would elect to treat with intravenous steroids. So someone that's listening to this talk that 
is at a centre and they're thinking about sending out for antibodies, uh, should they just pick and choose the antibody they like or uh, should they have confidence in the panels that are there, uh, a la carte off the menu, or uh, how do you feel about the panels? Uh, I think in the United States, uh, most of the laboratories offer panel testing as opposed to individual antibody testing. Um, it's probably different in different countries what's available. Um, so I can speak mainly to what's available to us in the United States. Um, I think the advantage of panel testing is that you do get to all of your results immediately and there's not sort of a second round of testing that needs to be done if you get initial um negative results with just a few select testing. So we typically use the autoimmune encephalopathy panel that gets sent to Mayo Clinic. There are similar panels that go to Arup laboratories and also other laboratories such as Quest. So we have a patient, have a high suspicion, treat the patient. How do we assess the effectiveness of the treatment that we gave? So we use our clinical assessment to judge clinical response. And this is because we don't have all that great tests that we can use to longitudinally follow patients. Uh, so we usually judge based on their clinical symptomatology and whether that's improved. So someone who presents with seizures, have their seizures improved, cognitive impairment, we often assess these patients with, if they're able to participate in cognitive screening and look at uh, the results of these tests. So looking at clinical response is the main feature. Sometimes patients do have abnormalities on the MRI that can be tracked. You can follow up a, with an MRI at, at an interval, but the MRI is less sensitive in encephalitis and there are patients that have um, grossly normal MRIs. What about following antibody titers? Helpful, not helpful? Often the titer doesn't necessarily correlate with the clinical activity, and so we don't tend to make our decisions based on the titers. Um, we use our clinical judgment instead. And I've heard uh, some individuals will say that if a patient was doing okay and then sort of had a relapse of symptoms, um, you could repeat the CSF, and if the IgG uh, synthesis is increased... Maybe that suggests some new ongoing neuronal abnormality. Any truth to that? Helpful, not helpful to monitor? I think if a patient has a clinical relapse, it, it probably is useful to repeat a spinal fluid and look for evidence of inflammation, and that and that can be multimodal. So you could look at cell count, protein, and also IgG index or oligoclonal bands. But again, I'd put it together these markers together with a clinical assessment, um, in addition to um, perhaps other tests such as an MRI altogether. So I would use my clinical assessment in conjunction with these other paraclinical markers. So historically, one of the things that people have asked me about over time is voltage-gated potassium channels. And I always cringe when I hear that. How often is that responsible for an autoimmune encephalitis? Or is it one of these true, true, and unrelated? Uh, the very early testing for VGKC uh, did identify that some patients do have limbic encephalitis, and that's why it became a biomarker. But more refinement of this testing, mainly driven by the Oxford um, autoimmune group, identified that there are more specific extracellular uh, antigens, which is LGI1 and CASPER2. Um, and testing for these has much greater specificity for limbic encephalitis or central nervous system autoimmunity. So we generally recommend that if a patient comes to our clinic or the hospital with VGKC positivity and there's a question of encephalitis that we proceed with this uh, further more specialised testing for LGI1 and CASPER2. 
And the reason is that VGKC has been shown to be not very specific and we can see it in other neurological disorders such as neurodegenerative diseases, but also in non-neurological conditions. Now, when a patient first presents, you know, the assumption is if they have an autoimmune encephalitis, that it's going to be a cell surface uh, process of which uh, steroids and uh, IVIG may be more helpful. But if it's an interneuronal process, then maybe these are less helpful. But I guess you don't know up front, right? You just treat everybody the same until the markers come back. Yeah, that's true. It's often difficult to distinguish initially clinically between uh, patients. Patients with intracellular antibodies, we still do tend to try treatment, um, but it is true that they may be less responsive to these types of immunosuppressive therapies. So where's the research in the field going? What's uh, anything hot going on? Anything new, exciting? Yes, I think there is some new developments in autoimmune encephalitis, mainly in the field of therapeutics. And we have now three randomized control trials planned for autoimmune encephalitis, which I think will generate a lot more understanding both of the conditions, but also of therapeutic responses in these patients. So there are three therapies that are currently uh, going to be opening or have just recently opened for randomized control trials. The first one is um, a study, the Extinguished Trial, led by Dr. Stacey Clardy in Utah. And this is a trial for anti-NMDAR encephalitis. And in this population, the trial drug is enebolizumab, so that's an anti-CD19 therapy. And the theory behind this therapy and its potential efficacy is that it has a, it targets anti-CD19, which has a broader expression throughout B-cell development than just anti-CD20. So that's one interesting study. Uh, the other uh, two studies that are opening at the moment are, there's firstly uh, the CLO trial, which is using satulizumab, and that's an anti-IL-6 receptor blocker. And this trial is going to be in patients with anti-NMDAR encephalitis and anti-LGA1 encephalitis. Then the third therapy, which is of interest, is rosanolixizumab, and that's a little bit of a mouthful. <laughs> and uh, this therapy is going to be trialled in anti-LGA1 patients. And this is a interesting therapy that's been shown to have some efficacy in myasthenia gravis. It's an anti-FCR receptor blocker, so it prevents IgG recycling and leads to unbound IgG being eliminated. And the advantage of this therapy is that it doesn't cause widespread immunosuppression. And this therapy is also planned for a trial in uh, MOG antibody diseases as well. So some interesting therapies, I think that these may change um, somewhat of our understanding of these diseases, but also perhaps our therapeutic approach. And how many of these trials are we going to look at opening at the Cleveland Clinic? We're going to be a site for the uh, Cielo or Satralizumab trial, as well as the Legion, which is the Rosanolixizumab <laughs> trial. And um, we, we won't be a site, unfortunately, for the Extinguished trial because we're not part of the Neuronext network. And maybe I should have asked you this question at the start, but what's the, what, what percentage of the population or neurologic patients do we see that have autoimmune encephalitis? How common is it? Still quite rare. I think the population-based studies have estimated about one per 100,000 um, in population-based studies in the United States. So it's still a fairly rare disease, but similar to the uh, incidence and prevalence of infective encephalitis. Of course, over time, the, studying rare diseases is hard and 
uh, to determine the exact prevalence and incidence. But we do think that over time, we're having greater recognition of these disorders and they are important, therefore, to target and treat um, these patients. Yes, it seems that whenever I'm on hospital service, it seems very prevalent in terms of the thought process. Uh, but of course, the reality is much, much less. But if you don't think about it, you'll never diagnose it, of course. Yeah, that's true that probably we also need to temper our enthusiasm for looking for these disorders and make sure that we always consider that common things are common. And uh, particularly in the hospital service, uh, there are many other causes for altered mental status other than autoimmune encephalitis. So any last practical tips you'd like to share with our audience? I think the main thing, just thinking along that point of common things are common, is um, just to think when we're evaluating patients acutely, particularly in the hospital service, to make sure that we are very careful and judicious in looking at differential diagnoses and not overcalling the diagnosis. So a patient with altered mental status, um, it's important to think through if there are any metabolic causes, toxic causes for their encephalopathy, um, as well as other differentials. So sometimes there can be mimics on MRI imaging, so tumours or uh, mitochondrial disorders that can also um, mimic these types of inflammatory changes on MRI. Um, and then finally, I think neurodegenerative disorders and primary psychiatric disorders can also sometimes um, mimic clinical presentations of encephalitis. So just keeping an open mind and making sure that we're very judicious about um, diagnosing these patients. Yeah, I'd like to just give a shout out uh, to an a article that you published in the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine in 2021, volume 88, uh, where you did a review of autoimmune encephalitis for those that are just chomping at the bit to get a little bit more information they can look that up and uh, provide some additional details so amy thank you very much for joining us today uh, i always learn uh, some additional things when i talk with you i'm excited about the fact we've got some research uh, trials going on here and also nationally uh, for this and uh, look forward to uh, continued collaboration with you thank you very much thanks very much glenn this concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our ConsultQD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word. And thank you for listening.